praise him once again this morning. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, if you would take out your copy of God's Word, the Bible, and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. There all, there's always some new study that uh, gives us statistics about religion in America, whether it's something from George Barna Research or Gallup Research or the Pew Research or the Pew Forum. Always studies going on about religion and um, religious thoughts in America. Most all of those studies use the same process. They want to look at what distinguishes one group, uh, one group's religion from another, one group's belief from another. And so we could uh, read lots of Barna studies and lots of Gallup studies that talk about the differences between those who are atheists in America and those who are Christian in America. And then they also look at the differences sometimes between uh, the beliefs within the religious communities of America. What's the difference of beliefs between a Christian and a Muslim and a Buddhist or a Mormon? Uh, they always want to look at differences. A year ago, the Pew Foundation, the Pew Research Foundation, they did a different type of study. And instead of looking at differences within America in the religious community or the, the different religions in America, they want to look at what are the similarities. What are the things that uh, no matter what religion they are, no matter what denomination they are, what are, the, what are the things that bond the religious people together? Not the, thing that the, the things that distinguish them, that separate them. What are the things that, that bring them together, that they agree on? And they found that there were seven bonds, uh, seven ideologies. They call them um, typology, seven types of religious people in America. So I want to read these. And just for you to, to think for yourself, which one do you fall under? Which religious typology do you fall under? Most of us are going to be in one of the first two, I would imagine. Uh, but we may have some in here that fall all the way down to the last one that, that they found. So here's the, the number one, or not, here's the order. 17% uh, of Americans are what they call Sunday stalwarts. They found that 17% of Americans are Sunday stalwarts. And that is religious traditionalists that are actively involved with their faith and they engage actively in congregations. 17% Sunday stalwarts. 12% are God and country believers. Socially and politically, this group of religious people, they're conservative. They're most likely to view immigration as hurting American culture. 11% of um, the religious in America are what they call diversely devout. They're traditionally religious, but majorities also believe in some other things along with the traditional religious beliefs such as psychics reincarnation and spiritual energy within physical objects 17 percent of religious people in america are are classified as relaxed religious they say it's not necessary to believe in god to be a moral person that religion is is important to them but few engage in traditional practices of religion, such as what we're doing today in attending church. 15% are what they call spiritually awake. Uh, few practice in this, in this category, this typology, few practice religion in traditional ways. 
but most believe in heaven and hell and subscribe to new age beliefs two more 12 percent of the religious in america are considered religion resistors and most think that organized religion does not does more harm than good and they tend to be politically liberal and then finally, which is 17%, the same amount that would describe many of us, the Sunday stalwarts, the final one was classified as solidly secular. They hold virtually no religious beliefs, and they even reject New Age beliefs. So they said there are seven typologies of religious people, of religion within America, and they classified them on what they share in common. Well, if you are interested in that kind of stuff, I am. The, the study, the whole description of the study is, is pretty insightful to where we are as a culture and where we are as a country. But I want to tell you that in reading that, there are three commonalities that no matter if someone was a Sunday stalwart or a God and country believer or a diverse uh, or, or a diversely devout or even all that last one, the solidly secular, Pew Research, and I, I wouldn't expect them to, but Pew Research, Pew Forum did not, um, did not really talk about, did not really study what three, uh, what three truths really connect all of those seven typologies. There's, there are three truths that are very important to all seven of them to realize that, that they all have in common. There's a lot of differences, but there are three truths that all seven of these typologies have in common. And at the end today, as we read and study Luke chapter 18, I want us to talk about, as we close in just a few moments, I want us to, I want us to see what those three commonalities are. So with your Bibles open to Luke chapter 18, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. So here's what we read. This is going to be a familiar passage to us. If you're a student of the Bible, uh, you've, you, we, we read this same account. It's not a parable. It's an actual account in Jesus's life. We read this same account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in, in all three of the Gospels, it, this account is in there. And normally we call it the account of the rich young ruler. So in verse 18, we read this. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in just a moment, we're going to find that this man was not only a ruler. Matthew and Mark tell us he was a rich ruler. We're going to find from Luke, as well as those other two, that this man was a Jewish man, and he was a devout Jewish man. He would be what we call a religious, very religious Jewish man who, who walked according to the Jewish beliefs. And he asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, by the way, uh, why would a Jewish man... Who, who had not accepted Christ, who had not followed Christ, already called Jesus a good teacher. That is a big no-no in the, in the Jewish theology. Back then and even today, they would not call a rabbi, a teacher, good because they believe that only God is good. And so therefore, to call a rabbi or a teacher good, you're putting that teacher on the same level with God. Now, Jesus is going to question that in a minute. He's going to pretty much ask the guy, do you understand what you're saying when you're calling me good? And so maybe he was just trying to butter Jesus up. Maybe he was trying to use some good terms uh, in order for Jesus to listen to him. And because he was a religious Jew, to not talk to him the way that we've been studying Jesus, talking to the Pharisees or the other religious people of Jesus' day. For whatever reason, he calls Jesus good, and he asks this question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? 
which is really an oxymoron there. It, it doesn't match. Doing something and an inheritance doesn't match. Uh, about uh, Julie's grandmother died. Olivia, uh, we, the kids called her Mama. Julie called her Mama. Mama died. Julie's grandmother died about, I don't know, 18 or 19 years ago. And about three or four months after she passed, we didn't know anything about it. We, we were living in Mississippi. We got a check in the mail, and it was from the estate of Olivia Warhurst. And I don't remember how much the check was. It was like $1,500. It wasn't a great or large sum, but it was Julie's inheritance because upon Olivia's death, upon Momo's death, all of her assets were liquidated and anything that was there was divided equally uh, among the grandchildren. Now, Julie didn't do anything to, to receive that inheritance. It wasn't that Julie had to drive from Meridian all the way over to Phil Campbell, Alabama once a week to clean her house. It wasn't that somewhere uh, in the past Julie had done some nice things for her grandmother, although she had. Julie received that inheritance simply because of who she was. She was the granddaughter of Olivia Warhurst, and that was her inheritance. You don't do something to receive an inheritance, but this man says, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do? What works should I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer as we have seen many times throughout this Gospel of Luke, is going to cause us good Baptists some problems. If we don't take time to really sift through it and unpack what Jesus says here and why he says what he does, we could really go down the wrong path of theology and teaching and doctrine. So here's Jesus' answer in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, he questions that, that good teacher, why do you call me good? And then he asserts, no one is good except God alone. Now, is Jesus saying, I'm not God? No, he's not. A year or so ago, we studied all the I am statements in John, where Jesus asserts, I am. He uses that phrase, I am, that, that traditional name of God in the, Jewish, uh, in the Jewish belief, Yahweh. Jesus was saying, I am. He, he asserted throughout his ministry that he was God. Jesus is not telling this young ruler, you were wrong in calling me good. We know that Jesus was God. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. Jesus is the Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So he's not saying, hey, you're wrong for calling me good. He's wanting to know, hey, man, do you understand what you're saying here? Do you really understand that you are, are speaking truth when you call me good? He says, so why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 20 you know the commandments. So here's the answer that's going to cause us some problems if we, just, if we just skate over it without understanding why. He says, you know the commandments. You want to know how do you inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus, oddly for us, he goes to the Ten Commandments. Why is that odd for us good Baptists? Because we preach, we believe, we know that according to Scripture, we cannot be saved by works, right? It's not by works that we're saved, lest anyone should boast, is what Paul tells us. We hold to, as Christians, as Baptists, conservative, evangelical Christians, we believe the truth of Scripture that we are saved by, by the grace of God, by grace through faith, we receive salvation. It seems that Jesus is saying that is not the case. It seems that Jesus is contradicting what we see Paul teaching all throughout 
uh, Ephesians and Romans and Galatians, it seems that Jesus is saying, hey, you're saved according to following the commandments. And so Jesus lists for him commandment five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Why would Jesus, when the question is, hey, Jesus, how do I get saved? I want to tell you something. This man was an evangelist dream. If you've ever been through evangelism training, uh, I've done through the years, there's uh, many of us has gone through, it's called EE, Evangelism Explosion, CWT, Continuing Witness and Training, Faith. Uh, it's, a, it's a process for evangelizing, sharing one-on-one, any uh, three that I've shared with y'all that we've, we've trained the church and how to share the gospel, the three circles, all these things. In every single evangelism training, there's always you want to be able to turn a normal, general, everyday conversation to religion, to, um, to heaven. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. How do you go from talking about football to talking about Christ? And so in every single one of those, EE, CWT, faith, any three, the three circles, there are always questions you ask to turn the conversation. Jesus didn't have to turn the conversation. This man said, hey, what can I do to get to heaven? And Jesus goes to the commandments. Why? Because Jesus knew the truth that we read in Scripture. He knew the purpose of the commandments. Do you know the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Was when we read the when when we read that uh, God spoke on the mountaintop, when God spoke to Moses and He wrote the Ten Commandments on those tablets, was God giving Moses the Jews and us? Was he giving us this checklist to say, if you keep this, you can have heaven. You can have eternal life. No. That was never the purpose of the commandments. That was never the purpose of God giving those commandments to Moses for the Jews and for us to be able to memorize them and know them and see them in the Old Testament. Well, if the purpose wasn't so that we could earn by works salvation, heaven, what was the purpose? Well, Turn with me. It's not going to be on your screen. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. It's, just going to, it's not going to take long to find Romans chapter 3. You got Acts and then Romans. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Write this down. This is, um, this is something that we must understand as, as Christians, as believers. And in context of what Jesus is saying, all right, you want to have eternal life, you've you got to do commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, the Apostle Paul, he goes back to the law. That's the commandments. And Paul says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, For by works of the law, listen to what it says, For, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He makes it clear that you can keep all the works and you will still not be justified in his sight. So what's the purpose of the law? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's Paul telling us there? 
He's telling us God's intent, intention in giving the law, the commandments. God's purpose in giving the commandments was to not, not to give the Jews or to us a checklist of saying, you keep these, you can earn heaven. It was to hold a mirror up. This is the commandments. It was to hold a mirror up to every single person who has ever lived to read those commandments and to recognize in reading them, I can't do that. I might be okay in some of them, but I failed in this one and that one and the other one. It was to reveal to man that every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It was to show man our true heart. It was to show women your true heart, that your true heart, while it may be religious, your true heart is sinful because you've broken at least one command, and Jesus said, if you break one, then you're guilty of all. And so Jesus goes to the commandments, to this good religious guy that, by the way, if you knew him, if I knew him, he would be the type of person I would want to be around. He was a good person. He was a good guy. He, he lived according to the law. He lived a good life. He was moral. Like many of us, he was moral and did the best he could and treated people right. But Jesus brings up the law, and look at what he says, his reply. And this man said to Jesus, hey, I've done all those. I've kept those since I was a youth, since I was a kid. Since I was a kid, I've not committed adultery. I've not murdered. I've not stolen anything. I've not uh, had false witness. I've, I've always honored my father and mother. So does that mean he's earned salvation? No, because Jesus is going to say, well, in verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. See, Jesus, Jesus knew what was in his heart. We've seen that time again as we studied Luke, that Jesus, knowing the intent of someone's heart, he speaks to the intent of the heart, not just to the words. He speaks to the intent of the heart. And Jesus speaks to the intent. He speaks to the heart of this religious man, this good man. And he says, here's what you need to do then. You need, you're still lacking. You need to take all that great wealth that you have you need to sell it all, and every dime of it you give to the poor. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. See, here's what Jesus did. He held up the mirror of the commandments to this man. And, and he thought, looking in the mirror, hey, I'm pretty good. I've done those things. I, 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 can, I, can, I can have eternal life. But Jesus wasn't through. You see, Jesus knew the intent of his heart, or he knew what was truly in his heart. What's the first commandment? That you're not going to have any other gods before me. And Jesus revealed that he had broken commandment one. What was the God that he had placed before Yahweh? His wealth. He was relying in his wealth. He was putting faith in his possessions. We know that because when Jesus told him to take it and, and give to the poor, he just couldn't do it. He, he hung his head and he, and he walked away sad. He couldn't do it. So what Jesus did once again, he, he held up the mirror of the commandment and said, you've broken commandment one. 
we were singing a song earlier. It's it's one of my favorite. It's not it's my favorite song. It's Living Hope. Um, David has a um, he keeps a record. He's actually memorized them. David, this is the one we couldn't think of the other day. And so he he has this list of songs that if I die, or when I die, if he's still alive and he's the one doing the music, there here are the songs that Michael wants uh, to have at his funeral. And this is, uh, so Revelation song is one of them, Living Hope. The song that we were singing, Living Hope, is one of them. It's my favorite song. I, I heard it for the first time a couple of years ago. And man, just the, the words, the, the first line, we, we sang this. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. What Jesus was doing when he went to the commandments and he said, all right, here's what you do. He said, I've already done them. Jesus was wanting to show him the chasm between he and God. He was wanting to show this man in a mirror the mountain that it was too great to climb. That he had already broken the very first one. He may have been okay in keeping five, six, seven, eight, and nine. But he had broken the first one. That his God was actually his possessions. His God was actually his money. But then on top of that... What's the 10th commandment? 10th commandment is not to covet what our neighbors have, to treat our neighbors right. Jesus was asked, uh, Rabbi, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, I'll tell you the greatest commandment. I'll tell you the second greatest commandment because he said all other commandments fall within these two. Jesus said, number one greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And he said the number two is like it. You love your neighbors yourself. This man was guilty of breaking the greatest commandment. He didn't love the Lord, his God, with everything. He loved his money with everything that he had. And then number two, he broke it too because he couldn't sell and give to the poor. He couldn't love his neighbors the way that the commandment called for him to. And so Jesus is holding up a mirror and saying, look at how far the chasm is between you and God. Look at how high that mountain is that you're impo it's impossible for you to climb. And so the man just, he, he puts his head down because he's very sad. We read in verse 24, Jesus seeing that he had become sad, he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives this analogy or metaphor. I don't know which one it is. Uh, he gives this analogy, which by the way is literal. Um, when we study about every four or five years, three or four years, I do a, a series on Wednesday nights on how to study the Bible. And uh, one of the things we talk about is taking the Bible literally. And uh, verse 25 says, and in, in Jesus speaking about the wealth and the kingdom, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you may have heard before, oh, there was a, a gate around Jerusalem, and it was called the Needle Gate, and um, owners of camels would have to make their camels get down on their knees and crawl through. No. There's no history. There's no record of any gate called the Needle Gate. So what's Jesus talking about here? Literally, he is saying it is easier for the, a big camel to go through the little bitty eye of a needle than for a rich person to get in heaven. Is Jesus teaching that it's a sin to be rich? Absolutely not. Uh, if that's the problem, David was rich, Solomon was rich. That's not, the, that's not what Jesus is teaching. What Jesus is teaching here is that when your wealth is your God, 
you have not loved the Lord your God the way scripture instructs. So he's literally saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so those who heard it, we assume the disciples, they were questioned, so who can be saved then? I mean, if it's, if it's that hard, who can be saved? Because in their Jewish mindset, they believed that if someone had wealth and possessions, then that was a sign of God's blessing. That, that possessions is a sign of saying, look how much I love this person. Look how good this person is. I'm going to bless them with all, these, all this wealth and possession. And so Jesus was challenging, challenging that false teaching. And they said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man, what is impossible to climb with man, what is impossible to keep all those commandments, that's impossible with man, but it's possible with God. How is it possible with God? It's the gospel. Christ died for my sins and rose again. The reason, the way it's possible is through Jesus Christ. Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection as a substitution for our sins. And Peter said, I love Peter. And we've seen so many times in this gospel of Luke that Peter kind of puts his foot in his mouth. He asks questions and he says things without thinking, and I do too, so many times. And Peter says, oh, look, see, we've left our homes and followed you. It's kind of like a, a little child here in the teeth. I've done that, Lord. I've done that, Lord. Jesus said, look at us, Lord. We've, we've done exactly what you've said. Pat me on the back. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So let's go back to the Pew Research that they did their research different from Gallup and Barna. They said, all right, what is it that, that the religious in America, that all these religious ideologies have in common? And I told you they left three out, the three most important commonalities. And it's in Luke 18 that we see what they left out, what, what all... No matter if, let me go back to those names, no matter if someone was a Sunday stalwart or a God and country believer or all the way down to a solidly secular, there were three commonalities that Pew, and I, I wouldn't expect them to, but that Pew left out. Here's the first one. They left, left out the commonality, the truth that religious people need salvation. Religious people need salvation. The Sunday stalwart needs the same salvation that the solidly secular person needs. They hold that in common. We hold that in common. Every single person in here, no matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are, you need salvation. And that salvation can only be found through the blood, the sacrifice, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the commonality that we can't get away from. We all need salvation. Here's why I find this type of research so interesting. Because when I read this type of research, 
I believe that within all of our churches around America, we have some wonderful, great, good, religious Sunday stalwarts. And we have some great, good, religious God and country believers. And, and then we may also have some relaxed religious. We may also have some religious resistors. But for most of us, especially here in the Bible Belt, our churches are filled with Sunday stalwarts and God and country believers that are religious to the core, but have never realized their need for salvation. That we are just like this rich young ruler who has the belief that, hey, I've done good. I go to church, I give a tithe every once in a while, I treat people the way I want to be treated, I don't, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I'm a good person, I'm a religious person. Can I tell you something? Good religious people go to hell when they die. It's important that we understand that. That's one of my biggest concerns about the church movement in America. The, the mega church movement that's in America is they, they don't want to expose the sin that we all have. They just want us to come into church and just have joy. And, and yes, there is joy. We see that in the last verse there in, in, verse, 20, in verse 30. The joys of being a Christian, the, the, um, the, the, what we receive for being a believer. But you know what? It's not joy until we really recognize that we're sinful and that mountain is too high to climb and that chasm is too great for us to cross. We have to see sin first. For it to be good news, we have to understand the bad news. Jesus wanted this man to understand the bad news before he gave him the good news. We all need salvation. And salvation is only found through Jesus Christ. The second characteristic that Pew left out, and again, I wouldn't expect them to, is that religious people can't earn salvation. Folks, I hear people say, I was, I was in the church nine months before I was born. That's great. But that doesn't earn you a spot in heaven. That doesn't give you eternal life. That doesn't allow you to inherit heaven when you die. We can't be good enough. I mean, if we could be good enough, this man, I was thinking about it this morning, this man, I was thinking in church context, this would be the type of guy that if he joined our church, he was so religious, so good, kept all the, the rules that after he had, um, according to our church bylaws, you have to be here a year to be a deacon. Um, after a year, we would say, you know what? Oh, Joe over there, he's going to be the chairman of the deacon board because he is the best guy around. This guy is good. If this guy couldn't earn salvation, folks, we can't earn salvation. You can be the chairman of every committee. You can be the Sunday school teacher. You can be the most religious church goer. You can do your devotion every single morning reading, reading the word. You can be as religious as possible. But that doesn't earn you a place in heaven. And then finally, what Pew left out was that religious people must repent to receive salvation. 
we see Jesus holding this mirror of the law up to this man, and he recognizes that he fell short. He saw his sin, and instead of repenting, Instead of going and this, this uh, we've talked about repentance so much to the gospel of Luke. Seems like every few weeks, Jesus in, in a passage in Luke talks about the importance of repentance, reported, the importance of repentance. Instead of taking that step of faith and following him and doing what he says and selling all of his possessions and giving to the poor, that's repentance for this man. He just hangs his head and he walks away. Salvation can't be earned we're saved by grace through faith through the son of god jesus christ and in doing so jesus is clear throughout scripture that repentance is a part of that step of faith One of the things, as um, I, if you were here for the baptism, I, I share baptized uh, Seth. I hope hope he's okay with me sharing this. I'm sure he will be. But as I talked to Seth and um, said, "All right, Seth, why do you want to be baptized?" And Seth this week started telling me about his confession of his sins in his life, and then he started talking about which took me by surprise because typically when I when someone shares their testimony with me I, I don't hear this and it, it may be there but I got to kind of dig it out a little bit but after he talked about his confession of faith and giving his life to the Lord then he went into repentance he started talking about and I've been living in repentance and he told us what that repentance looked like and I said well, all right then Here's the question that I have for us this morning. Are you a Sunday stalwart? Are you a God and country Christian? Are you a religious person in need of salvation? We had a couple come at the end of the first service. This size crowd undoubtedly, every week, undoubtedly, there are religious, good religious people in here today. But you're in need of salvation that can only be found. Through relationship with Jesus Christ. Through what Jesus, we studied earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross, repentance, and follow me. Are you a religious person in need of salvation today? Would you bow your heads? So I want to do this a little different with your heads bowed. I want to do this a little different than we normally do. I'm going to make my way to the cross. Micah is going to make his way to the cross. Are you in need of salvation today? If so... Would you just, um, I don't, with your heads bowed, everyone just stand. If you're in need of salvation today with your heads bowed, would you just make your way over to the cross? Praise the Lord. We had a couple this morning in the first service that said, you know what? I'm religious, but I need salvation.
Would you make your way to the cross right now? With your heads bowed, David's going to come and in a moment, we're going to sing the doxology in order to be dismissed. I want to give you an invitation. After the service, certainly guests, if you come and give me that connection card, I'd love to meet you. But also, even more importantly, if you're a religious person in need of salvation, may today be the day. As the Holy Spirit, through the reading, the teaching of God's word, has held that mirror up to you, and you know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, calling you to salvation. May today you come and just allow me or Micah to share with you further. Heavenly Father, I do pray that as your Spirit has spoken, God, that we will be obedient. Father, if there are folks in here today, and there are, who are good people, religious people. Father, may the truth of your word just uh, ring in their ears that good religious people go to hell every single day. God, may they take that step of faith today. May they call out to you denying themselves, taking up their cross and following you today. God, we ask that your spirit speak. I pray this in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.